Greetings, all ladies and metal gents, and welcome to the podcast version of Tales, Tales from Outer, from outer, outer space. space. In this episode, we'll be doing TFOS 1356 to 1362. And as always, I hope that you enjoy Tales from Outer Space 1356. Story number one Stop Sending Us Garden Worlds, written by Skull Bomb Raging. Today, was another meeting of the Council to discuss the recent achievements of humanity. A detachment of Humanity Unified Space Force had successfully taken down a strategic target considered to be completely impenetrable. There was a jovial conversation over the table. Just about everybody seemed to be having a good time. Except for the representative of Humanity, Councillor Heinrich. He was in a bit of a sour mood. It was in that moment that Senior Counsel Razak spoke. We here had a great many suggestions for awards of this commendation, but I think I have discovered the best option. We will give one of our prized core world seeds, Centauri One. What say you, Counselor Heinrich? Councillor Heinrich ran his hand through his hair. I'm sorry to ask, Senior Councillor, but um, is there something else that we can have instead? The Councillor was stunned. Councillor Heinrich just refused a core world seed, a paradise so perfect it was practically guaranteed to become a core world. But this was no issue for Senior Council Razak. He was well-versed in interspecies diplomacy. He took a look at the data that he had on Centauri 1 for a moment to rectify his mistake. Oh, uh, I'm sorry, Counselor. Centauri 1 is quite far away from the rest of human space. It would be hard to trade with or provide aid in a crisis. That was insensitive of me. Razik searched through some other suggested planets and picked a different one. How about Astra 4? It's a level 3 god world, so not quite as good, but it is much closer and easier to defend. Senior Counselor Razik admitted the part about Centauri 1 being surrounded by core world systems, making it extremely well defended for the sake of diplomacy. He knew that humans could be particular and tried his best not to take offense. Councillor Heinrich took a deep breath. My deepest apologies, Senior Councillor, but uh, I cannot accept that one either. Senior Councillor Razik was stumped. He double-checked and then triple-checked the data on the world. Even with all of the standard humans have, there shouldn't be any sort of issue. Senior Councillor Razik swallowed his pride. Forgive me for asking, Councillor Heinrich, but what is wrong with it? Councillor Heinrich chose his words carefully. It is, uh, it's, it's not suitable for, um, human interests. Senior Councillor Razik suddenly realized something. It was likely a cultural issue. Species are known to make strange decisions when some archaic aspect of their culture becomes involved, humans included. Senior Councillor Razak held up his hand. Say no more, Councillor Heinrich. I believe I understand. 
Sometimes things just get lost in translation. Yeah. Senior Counselor opened up the hollow screen next to the human representative. I will give you the liberty of choosing your own reward, as it seems I lack the cultural knowledge to assign one. This was a little humiliating for the Senior Counselor as he prided himself at being extremely adept at being able to bridge such concerns. Counselor Heinrich smiled apologetically, and then began to scroll through the list. Slowly, though, that smile faded into a frustrated frown. Eventually, the human reached the end of the list. Damn it! Damn it! Damn it! With the third iteration, the human pounded his fist against the table as hard as he could. This strike set a crack all the way down the poor, innocent furniture and startled all of the other counselors to their feet. After a moment, Counselor Heinrich also stood, but his was slower and more methodical. He then bent into a bow. I apologize, sir. I'll pay for the table. Senior Counselor Razak nodded, steadied his hands, replaced his chair, and then sat in it. One by one, the other counselors followed suit, until everyone was seated again. The senior counselor was the first to speak, and asked the question on everyone's mind. I am sorry, counselor, but I don't understand. What did we do to upset you? Counselor Heinrich sighed. Ah, it's not even your fault. Um, It's not like you knew any better. He sat up from his haunched position. I hate to be so blunt, Senior Counselor, but uh, stop sending us garden worlds. The Senior Counselor was speechless for a good few moments before he could regain his composure. Stop sending you the best worlds we have to offer. What about those other garden worlds that we gave you for previous commendations? Counselor Heinrich rubbed his temples. Uh, I was trying to be polite and subtly steer you towards solar systems with a planet that we could use. You can't use them, Senior Counselor asked, dumbstruck. Counselor Heinrich stood and created a large, hollow screen with his PDA, as he happened to be a conscientious objector to implant technology. The screen depicted a slideshow of property damage and harmed animals, All of these images were taken from the garden worlds that we've colonized at your behest. That is horrible. What happened? (sighs) The truth of the matter is that humans can't stand garden worlds. Um, The sheer peace of it causes us to become paranoid and eventually go insane. Uh, When absolutely nothing changes, humans eventually start to make up their own enemies, no matter how illogical. The human pressed a few buttons and created a hollow screen for each counselor. Please give this report a quick look through. The room was quiet for a good 30 seconds before the senior counselor had read through the highlighted part. I am sorry, counselor. The perpetrator suspected that his air conditioning unit was espionage. What does that even mean? I'd like to know that myself, senior counselor. This sort of thing happens, and every single time we send a group of humans to stay in a garden world for a term longer than three months, sometimes sooner. 
Senior Counselor Razak sat back in his chair and took his turn to sigh. <sighs> what do you suggest then, Counselor? Give us death wilts instead. Excuse me. What? Counselor Heinrich sat into his chair again. I'm dead serious. Our instincts are hardwired for it, and uh, if they're not tripped every once in a while, our instincts slowly start to think they're defective and lower the threshold until everything trips them off. Our constituent species will consider that an utter disgrace. There'll be an outcry that we're giving only the worst worlds to the humans despite their contributions. May I offer a suggestion, then? A number of hours after the council meeting, there was a press conference to release to the public what decision the council had made. It is with great honor that on behalf of the Grand Alliance Council that I bestow 15 Explorer-class frigates and free reign to claim any and all planets in the Seventh Arm Outer Reaches to humanity. May they continue to be exemplary in this new age of exploration. Visop muted the screen so that he could talk over it. You hear that, Frank? They're putting all the onus on finding new planets on humanity. What selfless... A gasp broke, and the human bartender looked up at the screen. Fifteen! That many! Frank walked out from behind the bar and towards the door. Wait! What about my drink? Visop called behind him. I quit. I only uh, reason I work here is because I barely flunked out space patrol exams. He saluted chokingly. See you in the stars, Faisal. End of story. Story number two. Standardized templates written by Whiskey Lullaby. Commander Joseph Zell stared at the view screen with a slight grin. Ship readiness and conversion percentages rapidly increasing as the Terran Union prepped for war. Lugo, an attaché from the Galactic Council, waddled his duck-like form over to Zal. Skies and lakes, how can your military grow so rapidly? He exclaimed, the translator catching up to the burbling musical language of Lugo's species only after a few moments. Zal just grinned wider. Watch and see, he said, tapping a few buttons. Instantly, the view screen shifted from the numerical data to cameras on the outside of the station. Hundreds, if not thousands, of human vessels of every size crowded at the docks. Crews of men and machines raced about, removing whole sections of crafts with a disturbing ease, before replacing friendly, sleek, sibling components with bulky, armored, sinister military ones. Cargo ships turned into heavily armed carriers in mere minutes, Starliners went from luxurious cruise ships to cruisers and even dreadnoughts. Tiny racing craft were fitted with larger reactors and weapons galore, becoming interceptors, bombers, and gunships. What? Lugo sputtered, feathers ruffling and his four eyes widened. You mean to say? He trailed off as Zal fixed him with an almost predatory stare. <laughs> yes, every human ship follows standardized modular templates. Don't need much of a fleet in peacetime, so it keeps costs down. But in war, <laughs> well, there's a lot of ships out there, a lot of humans just a bit tired of taking flack from some arrogant alien. A lot of people who still remember the first contact war and how much we lost. Now, um, 
You and your council have a choice to make. Join forces with us or... Um, stand against us. End of story. Tales from Under Space 1357. Story number one. Planetary Warfare. Written by Storm's Wrath. Planetary Warfare. It was mostly an outdated concept. Before the Terrans came. Why deploy infantry on a planet when you could simply park your fleet in its orbit and bombard your enemy cities? When the Myrians declared war on the Terrans, Everyone thought that they were finished. All the Terrans had going for them was advanced shielding technology. Their guns couldn't pierce the Myrian shields or armor. Their missiles were slow and easily avoided. Only higher caliber Terran weapons could pierce Myrian battlesuits. The Myrians knew this, of course. They also knew that any and all shields required power. So... When the Myrian fleet entered the Sol system, they began eliminating power sources, fusion reactors, antimatter reactors, even fission and solar power generators. But it wasn't enough. The third planet in the Sol system, Earth, was the Terran homeworld, and they didn't use fusion power, more antimatter power for their shields there. They were there, of course, for redundancy, but mostly powered Terran cities. No. The Terrans used something called geothermal power for their shields. All they had to do was to place a few million heavily shielded power generators inside the mantle under the ocean and just cycle the heated ocean water through some fans for power. Then send the extreme amount of generated power to incredibly powerful shield generators and suddenly Earth became a fortress. This was possible because of the type of world that the Terrans inhabited. The surface of the planet wasn't uniform and was divided into several different pieces. These pieces moved around and against each other, generating pressure released in events called earthquakes or volcanic eruptions. The core of the planet generated huge amounts of heat and pressure. This geothermal power continually sustained heavy orbital shielding over almost all of Terran homeworld, even the oceans. Vast swaths of water were completely covered as some of these plate boundaries ran through them. There was a single hole in the shield, however. Well, it wasn't a hole, really. It was still able to prevent orbital strikes and planet crackers from reaching the surface, but it was thin enough to get some drop rods through. The Myrians didn't stop to think about whether it was intentional. Of course, the Derrens didn't just sit idle when the Myrian fleet sat in orbit, Sometimes the planetary shield would flare, releasing powerful electromagnetic pulses that scrambled targeting systems. A few Terran ships were always whittling away at the Myrian fleet, though they did little damage. The Myrian commander gave the order to retreat, not because they were beaten, but because they did not have the technology to win. Thirty years later, the Myrians came back with a larger fleet, carrying millions of soldiers and hundreds of thousands of drop pods. They blockaded the system and destroyed the orbital defense platforms orbiting the moons and planets. They couldn't get at the space elevators, which were covered under the planetary shields. During the thirty years, the Terrans had built larger and thicker shields all over the rocky planet and moons in their system. 
The Earth shield alone was nearly five times as strong as it had been when the Myrians had left the Sol system. The Terrans broadcasted a message with enough power to be detected across nearly a tenth of the galaxy. Surrender! The Myrians began deploying their drop pods over the observed hole in the Terran shielding. They landed in the northern part of one of the continents, a region named Canada. And while they braved the thick snow and the frigid cold, their fleet in orbit was attacked. It wasn't hit by the Terrans, really. But when you make the best shielding technology in the galaxy, that gets you allies very quickly. So the Terrans' aligned factions pinned the Myrians against the planetary shields of Earth. It wasn't an extremely savage battle, as the Myriams just moved their fleet away from the allied fleets. The allied fleets let them do so. The shield curved downwards towards the planet as the Myriams got closer, under the fire of Terran allies and pinned between a rock and a hard place. They chose the rock. They landed their light fighters and the Terran atmosphere, unable to properly target cities due to the electromagnetic interference. The battlecruisers and dreadnoughts of the Myriams remained in high orbit. Nothing could touch them under the cover of their combined shielding. Or so they thought. As it turns out, extremely efficient geothermal power could be weaponized. The Terrans knew how to increase volcanic pressures with a few underground fusion bombs. Other planets had volcanoes as well. It was common on planets and moons exposed to heavy tidal gravity. But the Myriams did not have any proper models for a super volcano. The Terrans did. The Miriams detected a massive explosion on the surface of the planet, an impossibly large volcanic caldera, thought dormant by the Miriams in their initial scan of Earth's surface, had erupted. The shockwave circled the planet dozens of times, but the Miriams had a larger problem. The power of the eruption had destroyed most of their infantry forces and nearly all of their cruiser escorts. The ash made the power draw of their shields increase by nearly twenty times. The Miriams surrendered from the helm of their finest dreadnought, now barely able to keep the lights on. The Terrans accepted their surrender promptly. Ten days later, they sent another message to a wider galaxy. We don't just fight on our planets. We fight using our planets. End of story. Story number two, Making an Omelette, written by T. Speyer. I was sent as a part of the evaluate delegation to Earth. One of our stealthier agents had picked up a warning that humans had some rather frightening ideas, chief amongst them being, you can't make an omelette without breaking a few eggs. The meaning of this thing was not entirely clear, so we investigated as the member of the team with the most human-like biochemistry, I was assigned to investigate actual omelets. I objected that this was a waste of my time, but we were told to be thorough. I've submitted my report on omelets under a separate cover. No one should bother to read it. In the process of observing, though, I noticed two things that are of interest. The first was the cook's spatula, which was flexible enough to follow the curvature of the plan now, spatulas are pretty common amongst industrialized omnivorous species, and flexible spatulas are hardly unknown. But they usually are made out of an organic polymers that don't take heat well, 
and the pan was directly over an open methane flame. Aren't you worried about heat will damage our spatula? I asked. Nope, he said. The spatula silicon, it's designed for this. Silicon? Yes, uh, I'm not sure exactly how it works, but uh, it's a silicate polymer with really good heat resistance, great for cooking implements. Silicate polymer? Now, I learned in school that silicates form crystals, and occasionally amorphous solids that are as rigid as crystals. Silicates don't form flexible structures. That's why the galaxy is full of carbon-based life, and not silicon-based. Silicon would be too rigid. You probably know that too. Apparently, nobody told the humans, despite the fact that their planet is 70% silicate crystals, with no naturally occurring silicate polymers. So, they wanted a silicate polymer, and they went out and made one. This got me looking a little more closely at the rest of his tools. I noticed that the half-made omelette wasn't sticking to the pan at all, despite having some pretty sticky things in it. I asked about this, and he said the pan was coated in Teflon, an extremely non-sticky material. Why does it stick to the pan, then? I asked. He laughed. Apparently, it was a running joke of some sort amongst the humans. Then he explained. It's a pretty involved process, uh, actually. I'm a little vague on the details, but, uh, uh... I'm a little vague on the details, but, uh... There's some sort of high-temperature ion bombardment to strip the fluorines from the pan side of the molecules. Fluorines, I repeated. That was the last thing I'd expected to hear in the context of cooking. I was too shocked to be shocked. Yeah, he said, as if there was nothing shocking about it. That's what makes it so non-sticky. The outer layer is all fluorine bonded to a carbon backbone. Stickiness is mostly about covalent bonds, but uh, no oxidizer in food can pry the carbon away from those fluorines. But, uh, fluorine? How many scientists died putting this together? Teflon itself, uh, I, I don't think any. The, um, early history of fluorine chemistry had a lot of casualties. So that's humanity. Forget breaking eggs. Apparently the saying should be that you can't make an omelette without completely rewriting the structure of matter and performing high-energy transformations on a single deadliest corrosive gas in the universe. With a lot of casualties. So, um... So, um, I do endorse opening trade relations. Uh, there's a lot to be gained, but, uh... We also need to employ extreme caution in dealing with them, because uh, they won't be employing any caution at all. Men of Story Tales from Outer Space 1358 The Ancients, written by Imitated Self Lorgrim looked out at the viewing portal from the main observation deck. The variety in designs and purpose of the assembled ships was still something he almost couldn't believe. It was only 200 years ago that the Apollonians had discovered the secret to faster-than-night travel and communication, a breakthrough that had seen the very laws of nature bent to their will. Within a short amount of time, the universe had gone from a lonely and cold place to one filled with adventure and discovery. Of course, it was one thing to find out that there were other intelligent species out there, that had kind of always been suspected. Even many centuries ago, scientists and philosophers postulated about whether other life could be, the strange forms it could take. 
Writers and artists foresaw wars greater than any other and alliances stronger still. However, no one was prepared for what lay beyond their own system. Admiral Creel stepped up. It is quite something to see such a sight. Even after all this time, it still feels a bit too, um, storybook, don't you think? Logram smiled and shook his head knowingly. The Admiral was a Malkarie, one of the first races that had connected with. Their homeworld consisted almost entirely of their great rainforests and warm oceans, life thriving and adapting. The Malkarine themselves had evolved a strong resistance to the toxins and poisons of the predators in the jungle, and had tremendous lung capacity, which in their history allowed their race to dive deep into the oceans for the clams and oysters which provided much of the sustenance. Now, they were known more for their mastery of the sciences and biology, their homeworld providing a vast array of unique organic compounds that were useful for a wide variety of ailments and effects. I don't think it'll ever cease to amaze me, and certainly when it does, I will know it is time to retire. Logram said honestly. He looked up at the slim and taller Malkari, for Apollonians grew up under an immense gravity of their planet. So, although almost a full two feet shorter than the Admiral, Logram would have bet he outweighed his counterpart at least three to one. It took quite a while to get used to the lower gravity on the communal decks of the space station, but Lorcrum was still a mass of muscle that could just as easily lift massive supply crates as robotic assistants the Malkari used. Lorcrum looked at the bright flash, indicating its ship transmitting into the station's orbit. It appears as though the Mandalaks have finally decided to show up. Do you know, it was said that the first Apollonians first made contact with them. They refused to believe that we had actually discovered faster than light travel. All those years in space, they were almost indignant that they hadn't discovered it first. It is understandable. The Mandalukes have been in space far longer than any of us. It is said that most of them never even experienced real gravity. Logram knew this to be true. Even... If he knew the story of first contact was perhaps somewhat apocryphal. The Mandalukes were said to have left their planet thousands of years ago. According to their legends, the ancients came to them and gifted them with the ability to escape their dying star, and granted them a new home amongst the stars. They were resourceful. Cargo holds full of ore and raw materials full of whatever they could find from asteroids in space debris. It was said that if you gave a Mandalek two days and a screwdriver, they would fix any problems on your ship, both the ones you did know about and the ones you didn't. Their bodies were adapted moving around ships and living in zero-G. Long arms and delicate fingers allowed them fantastic dexterity, and their thin frames required only half the calories of most races, and a tenth of what Logram consumed to keep his massive body in shape. In addition, they were able to enter an almost trance-like hibernation when resources were scarce. The soft hum of the automat door signaled another arrival to the viewing tank. It is momentous day, and yet here you two are, as quiet as a poldak and a leaper lily. Neither of the two had the faintest idea of what exactly that meant, but the Spanishians were known for their, uh, 
flavorful language. Why, yes, um, well, if we had as much fun as your crew, I can say that I don't think that we would ever get all done. I'm glad that you could take the time to join us in our more mundane downtime at Bastard Creighton. Logram commented without turning around. It was said most envoys of Spoonia rarely lasted a full year before succumbing to exhaustion. The planet was cold and harsh for much of the year. But although the jewel suns of their system provided little warmth, it did allow for a 33-hour day. With the longest nights of the year lasting only three hours. As such, Spoonitians were a bit bulkier and covered almost fully in a thick coat of brown or white hair that provided insulation and they had adapted to only a few hours of rest per day, which instead of extra workshops, they devoted up to more entertaining activities. Logram continued to look out the window. His eyes could make out the ships of 23 different races, different cultures, different people, and even now there was still much more of the galaxy to explore. And yet, despite all their differences... There had yet to be a full-scale conflict since the signing of the first accords between the Apollonians and the Ibaimai. Some scholars try to attribute this to the technological prowess and the might of the FTL drive, but most believed that it was something else. For despite their differences, there was a remarkable similarity amongst the races of the accord. Bipedal, predatory species for the most part, and all evolved from remarkably similar DNA structures. Creighton took a place next to the pair and spoke, almost as if he could read Lorcrum's thoughts. I wonder if this is what the ancients would have hoped for when they traveled the stars alone. Did they foresee this future when they passed through the galaxy, do you think? Lorcrum wasn't sure. The ancients. It was almost 40 years, and uh, if Lorcrum's memory of childhood history classes was correct... Not until the Accords included twelve races that any connection was made. The scholars of the Shanghaian and the first discovered that each of the races had certain fairy tales, stories, or legends of a group of travelers now known as the Ancients. Even now, scholars spend their whole lives attempting to collate, collect, and understand these accounts. But the general theme of the most of the stories was that the Ancients visited the planets and civilizations, in many cases, gifted technology and innovations to save the populations or help them grow. But what happened to these ancients is always unknown. In some stories, it is said that they are travelers from a lost home. In others, they are explorers and wanderers. In historical times, they were seen as gods or deities by some. Now, in an age that Lorgren hoped was more enlightened, they are seen as the first starfarers, the first ones to travel the galaxy, although the stories were the only signs of their passage. Despite vast resources spent exploring the galaxy, there were no colonies, no ships, not even abandoned wreckage or signs left behind. They came, brought knowledge and hope to the inhabitants of many worlds, and then left. Not a single intelligent race found was left untouched by their presence. Yet, for the breadth of their reach, it seemed that there was no trace left to be found. I hope so, Ambassador. However, with the arrival of the Mendelic cruiser, I believe it is almost time for me to actually do some work. 
new planets to discover, new worlds to be set foot upon. And so I shall take my leave. Be sure to have a drink waiting for me when I get back, Orgrim said, bowing to take his leave. For he did enjoy the company of the ambassador, even if he could only tolerate it in short bursts. And he wasn't lying. For although it was said that the Mandalak had never been on time, it was also said that they always left early. Truly, travelers at heart. This would be Logram's 51st expedition. They were set to spend nearly a year traveling to some of the furthest reaches of the explored space, which, if he was honest with himself, that was precisely where he enjoyed being. Although he would enjoy quite a bit more once he was back into artificial gravity, which didn't make him feel like he could fly away with every step. Logram couldn't say that he was surprised. The vast majority of systems that they journeyed to were absent of any noticeable life. Almost 90% of most expeditions were just routine scans for future scientists, administrators, and officials to look over. They would document current conditions, any life if it existed, and the general state of any orbiting bodies, so that the Environmental Council would be able to determine whether or not any further visits would have any detrimental effects and what resources could be efficiently gathered. The particular system that they were surveying now was a white dwarf with several gas giants orbiting in outer reaches, and a single rocky planet. Initial scans had turned up little. There were some indications of microbial life on several moons. However, Logram felt some unease as he read the most recent report from the drone scan of the sole rocky planet. The surface was devoid of life, for the cold core had long since stopped spinning and the star had stripped away any atmosphere. Logram had seen a hundred of the same world. However, something was off. To be honest, something had been off since they began the first scans of the system, containing two orbiting belts of asteroids and gas giants of the system had hundreds of moons. The composition reports were odd. Although there was a significant amount of rocky asteroids, there were barely trace amounts of iron, ice, and the rarer elements amongst the various bodies in the system. Even then, it was only in the deeper scans that showed the amounts. Then the innermost planet, that was where it clicked. Lieutenant, uh, prepare a team for a journey to the surface of the first planet as soon as possible. Norgrim looked again at the data slate in front of him. Not a single solid body in the system was composed of more than 0.05% iron. Yet, on the first planet in the system, in only a single location, there was almost 240 tons of metal close to the surface of the planet. The shuttle slowly descended. They had picked the area closest to the strange readings to examine first, and although the Nobelese science officer wanted to do another scan since the first was obviously faulty, Lorgrim overrode her. The red sand of the planet was still as they landed near the only noticeable feature of the small rock outcropping. According to the shuttle, the drone's initial scans were correct. They were sitting on a significant deposit of metal, some of which was no more than a few meters below the surface. As the rest of the team began setting up gear and equipment, Logram moved to the outcropping. Despite the current state of the atmosphere, it showed signs of erosion and age. As he circled around, he stopped. 
He stopped because he set into the rough rock face was a door. Not a door like erosion or a cave entrance, but a door. His scanner couldn't penetrate it, but it seemed to be some sort of diamond alloy. He called to the team almost breathlessly, and again they urged caution, but Logram wasn't about to let something like that get in his way. Not in any of the hundreds of planets he had set foot on before had he seen something that was such an enigma. Initial scans appeared to indicate that the door itself was likely well over four billion years old. Yet, the door had opened easily. There did not appear to be any locks, defenses, or indications of any inhabitants. A long stairway brought them deeper into the planet's surface, and eventually through an airlock. An airlock! Certainly, there was something here. But where were the people? What race had built this monument to last for a millennia, only to abandon it? Surely, any race capable of such a feat of engineering would have had satellites, radio signals, or some sign of life. Yet, this was the only structure in the entire system that showed any signs of technology or intelligent design. He took off his helmet when his suit assured him that it was safe. A little too much nitrogen... Not quite enough oxygen for his taste, but it was certainly breathable for almost all of his crew. Inside the structure was a network of hallways, rooms, and corridors that would certainly take months to fully explore. But markings on the wall seemed to indicate a large chamber located near the middle of the structure, and Logram went straight to it. The large room seemed to be a uh, grand hall of some sort. It reminded Logram of a visit he once made to the Mahagam Museum, where they had displayed the skeletons of giant prehistoric avians that had previously roamed the plant. Except, instead of the fossilized remains of long-dead birds, this held great displays of ships. Logram couldn't be sure of the scale, but there must have been at least a thousand displays surrounding the large dais in the middle of the room. The autotrans had much harder time with the written words than spoken, and so it would still likely be hours, if not days, before they could decipher any of the texts surrounding the exhibits. Looking at the models of ships as he passed, he noticed design features and engineering that seemed somewhat familiar. However, he did not see on any of them the trademark orbitals that would have indicated that the ships were able to achieve speeds beyond novel physics. He wondered to himself, where had they all gone? Or more likely, why they had never been built in the first place. Logram walked up to the dais, his suit lights casting strange shadows around the room as he looked at some sort of display panel. Then suddenly, something activated. Logram had not touched anything, so he assumed it must be key to his presence alone and assumed a somewhat defensive posture as a hologram appeared on the dais and began speaking. Donex Selecton Elkilis Ipsen Quas Balvanar Nulam Injetso Nek Erat Valapat Isgustus. Logram waited for his autotrans to begin playing the translated speech. The hologram was of two bipedal figures, their skin smooth and almost featureless. One had shorter hair protruding from the top of the head, the other had much longer hair. Although Logram had never seen the race quite like this before, 
he couldn't say that the features were wholly unfamiliar. Five-fingered hands, front-facing eyes, oddly large ears. Logram's auto-trance kicked in. And so, as the sun begins to expand and engulf the unknown, we must move on. We have used up our resources on both foolish wars and great endeavors. The earth is not what it once was, and we can do nothing but hope that as we venture out into the solar system, we will take with us the knowledge to be better than our ancestors were. And yet, we leave behind this monument, for it was in the earliest days of our race that we first set foot upon unknown. It is fitting that it shall also be the last planet in the system any of us shall ever call home. For generations we have mined, built, and sent ships out, those that you see around you. And although we have little hope to ever see each other again, we cannot abandon our noble endeavor to survive and perhaps as the future generations make way through the black void and the distance becomes too great for contact, they will nevertheless find new worlds to settle upon and new lives to lead. For years, mankind has listened and waited for the call of other life and called in turn, and yet we were never answered. But we will not go quietly into the night, as the captains of the last ships to leave the system, we leave this last sight, a final message should we not survive. As a repository of all that we were, lest we be forgotten to history. This hall, this building, has been created to last until the end of time, and shall be an enduring monument to all those sacrifices and hurdles that were overcome. It is now time that we follow in the paths of those that went out before us, the ESS Apollo, the ESS Marie Curie, the ESS Sputnik, the ESS Shanghai, the ESS Gandhi, the ESS Noble, the ESS Mandela, the ESS Obama. May we one day meet again. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1359 We Are Sorry Three Times Written by I'm Not Angry Admiral Krath Draken stood up from his chair on the bridge of his flagship, looked around at his command staff that were all carrying out his orders, and sighed deeply. He took one more look at the display, showing the size and makeup of the Varari fleet that was bearing down on them. His fleet was the last line of defense between the Varari and the homeworld of Chitar, and he knew that he was not going to be able to stop them. In just over thirty minutes, they would be in weapons range, and all the craft could do was try and get as many non-combatants out of the line of fire as he could. With all that in mind, he turned to the human ambassador that had been standing by the door waiting for his attention. Mr. Adams, sir. I do not know why you would come here at this time, but I will be commandeering your ship and loading it with as many of my people as it can accommodate for you to get out of this, um... He waved his claw vaguely at the tactical screen, showing the Varari fleet. Situation. Yes, Admiral. Happy to help with that. In exactly fifteen minutes, you can have full command of my ship and do with it as you please, but, uh... Until then, can we talk? I was sent with some formal business that needs attending to. 
I do not know what formal business you might have with a man about to go down with his ship. But if you can talk while we walk to the medical bay, then so be it, replied the Admiral as he stalked out of the bridge door. Am I correct that you are the same crass Tracken that attended the welcoming ceremonies between Earth and Chitar all those years ago? said the ambassador from just behind Krath as they walked down the corridor. Why, yes, I was. I may have been the most junior member of the Jadar delegation, but uh, I was there. Ah, yes, good then. I believe you knew my grandfather, James Adams. That got Krath's attention. He slowed down his brisk walk and looked down at the ambassador. Oh, you're Jimmy's grandson, are you? Ninety-seven years ago, Earth, the human Chitar Alliance ceremony. Lieutenant James Adams stood against the wall with the far back corner of the room. The diplomats giving the big speeches were so far away he couldn't tell one from another, just human or Chitar, and the general hum of the Chitar and the humans in the room masked even the audio. But that was fine. His only job today was to accompany his assigned Chitar and make sure nothing bad happened to him. First time at one of these, James said up to the Chitar, who at eight feet towered over James's six. Yes, um, came the reply. They are not very common. Uh, finding a new neighbor this close to our borders was a surprise. Any further away and we would have just been simply training partners, sir. You're so close, though, that uh, getting formal diplomatic relations now will save us from issues later. We hope, um... Yourself, uh, have you been to similar ceremonies before? Oh, um, no, said James. We have only had true interstellar flight for a handful of years now, and as far as I know, we've only directly met a few races other than the Chitar, and none of them seemed interested in more than being trading partners. Yes, well, um, the alliance gets tricky. That is why most races will only get involved with direct neighbors, I can't send you a copy of the fall of Azula Imperium after this. It details the fall of the last great galactic multicultural empire. Mostly dry reading, but it happened only a few hundred years ago, so it still lays heavy in the interspecies politics. My grandparents fought in some of those battles. That actually sounds quite interesting. After this, want to find a spot to sit and chat about it. James figured his babysitting job might be easier if the eight-foot-tall, scaly-skinned red behemoth wanted to sit down and chat. Yes, I cannot hear or see anything here anyways. Did I read in my briefing that you also consume ethyl alcohol for recreation? Inquired Krath casually. James smiled, despite himself. You know, um, I do believe the officers' club is inside our current security perimeter. They will have a fine selection for you to try. Maybe today wasn't going to be so bad after all. Does um your digital translate another word? Karaoke? Current day. The Igus flagship for Admiral Krath Track and Chitar System Defense Force. As Krath led the way into the med bay, Ambassador Adams continued speaking. Admiral, the first thing I need to tell you is thank you. An entire generations of humans has been born and grown old, knowing the Jutar as friends. Living in a galaxy where that friendship has a shield over our whole race, protecting us from a more aggressive neighbors, and keeping the space lanes free from trouble with your large and powerful fleets. The Admiral scoffed. Ha! 
Not powerful enough. Uh, we had been at odds with the Varari for years, but had fallen into a nice stable standoff between equals. I don't know what changed in the last few months, but um, they are throwing four times more tonnage of ship into this war than we even thought they had. Our powerful fleets got swatted aside with almost no warning. So why, asked Mr. Adams, did you not ask us for help when things went sideways? Our alliance clearly states that we would come and help at any call. We owe you so much for all that you've done to us. Claxton sounds. Twenty-five minutes until contact. All non-essential personnel are to evacuate immediately. Grath finished signing the medical discharge paperwork for all injured soldiers so that they could be evacuated as civilians. They might give them a chance at surviving another day. He turned towards the diplomat. After the first two engagements, those of us with access to the battle telemetry knew the outcome of the war. At this time, the Varari have had no reason to hate your people. If we had called you into this war and still lost, then we both would have fallen under the Varari thumb. As it is now, you have a chance. And in this universe, sometimes the best that we can offer is a chance. The same chance that I'm trying to give my people right now. Well, Admiral, then the second thing I need to tell you is that we're not just fighting the Varari. All of those extra ships, we investigated that also. And while they may look Varari, the metal in them has some distinct radiation signatures. Those ships were produced at a shipyard in a binary star system. But the Varari don't have any shipyards in a binary star system. Grath looked back over his shoulder towards the ambassador. They were at the armory where the admiral was grabbing several sidearms to take back to the bridge with him. They had help. A third party supplied them as a proxy for the swore. Yes, sir. We knew the Soros had a massive shipyard in Syria system, the binary star system. Out of curiosity, we sent a scout ship to investigate and saw the hulls of several more Varari ships in production. And while the Varari may not have a quarrel with humanity, the Soros surely do. After the incident a few years ago. Claxon sound. Twenty minutes until contact. All non-essential personnel are to evacuate immediately. They were walking back onto the bridge. The Admiral sat back down in his chair. Be that as it may, Admiral, in the here and now, I need you to get your ship as far away from here as you can. Save as many people as possible for me. Saving as many of your people as possible is the plan, Admiral. But before I go, I need to say... We are sorry three times. First, uh, we are sorry that we have not grown to equals yet in your eyes. You've given us so much protection over the years. We are sorry that we have not done more to earn it. Second, we are sorry that we are thieves. On that first night on your planet, while you were singing your rendition of Take Me Home Country Roads... You left your data pad with my grandfather so he could transfer a book off from it while you sang. He also, uh, transferred a cash from your military documents. Claxton sound. Fifteen minutes until contact. All non-essential personnel are to evacuate immediately. Lastly, we are sorry that we are so late. It took us some time to get everything ready. The whole ship rocked as the new gravity waves washed over it and the ship's systems started compensating. 
Red lights and sirens started blaring on the bridge. Massive warp fields entering the system. Radiation signatures unknown. They are either really big or really fast, screamed the ensign over the alarms. Um, a little bit of both, said the ambassador. Might I suggest you switch to a visual display of the Varari fleet? What in the true house is going on, Mr. Adams? roared Admiral Krathdraken as he leapt up from his chair. They are coming in, danger close and pushing extreme radiation, the ensign called out. Don't worry, my ship is feeding them telemetry. They know where they're going. With that, four massive oval ships of a design the Admiral had never seen before emerged from warp space between the two fleets. The new ships were carrying velocity directly towards the Varari. In front of each of the giant ship bows ran waves of orange radiation, burning through space hotter than a star with all the built-up particle destruction they brought with them by driving engines while in warp space. Are you insane? screamed the Admiral. That's annuac radiation. Did you sacrifice the crews of those ships just for a chance at disabling some of the Varari's ships? One of the plans my grandfather stole from you was uh, for a missile that would push radiation ahead of itself to multiply its damage effect. It was too small, and the radiation was too chaotic. After many years of work, we found that if we built a properly shaped ship, we could control the direction of that radiation. And with some extra shielding technology, it was mostly harmless to the occupants of that ship. It does still take a frightening long time to build up, and its effective range is quite small. For the last 15 minutes, my ship has been given targeting telemetry to them while they were coming in on the final approach. As he finished, they all watched as the radiation waves rolled over the Varari fleet. Smaller ships were torn to shreds. Larger ships had their shields stripped right off of them. The whole fleet now was sitting duck for the tour of Dreadnought-class ships to rake with some standard pulse, fusion, laser and kinetic weaponry. Engines still firing, they pushed right through the enemy fleet, disabling or destroying everything they targeted. It was a massacre. As I got clear on the other side, warp signatures re-emerged, and a few seconds later, the four massive ships were gone again. They uh, have a date with the Varari Home Defense Network. You should clean up here and join them. We're hoping that you specifically, Admiral, and the Jatar in general can take all the credit for this incident. We would rather not let word of our involvement get out. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1360 Story number one. War Simulator AI, written by Sinchi Dev. The discovery of the device was fortuitous. War Chief Markram saw just once when the diplomat sent him on a visit to a human military base, Sonic it well. After their defeat in the Glanark system, a military shame, if there was ever one, a war fought in less than a cycle with minimum damage to the humans and half the fleet lost to the Morsians. Commander Quisp had the device in his hands and hid it hastily when War Chief Markram arrived. That small detail told War Chief Markram that it was something important that the human didn't want to share. After returning to his planet, War Chief Markram ran to the espionage, sabotage, and statistics tower on the capital to tell them about this new piece of information. Small, roughly the size of two human hands, touchscreen, war simulator, 2D grid battlefield, advanced AI for tactics training. 
War Chief Markram was reassigned to espionage, sabotage, and statistics. He then proceeded to start the biggest operation of search for a piece of technology the espionage, sabotage, and statistics department ever had. Multiple agents all through the galaxy searching for just one device. After one standard solar cycle, they had zero results to show for it. The humans surely had been careful with the hiding of this device. The search took them everywhere, from the scrapyards after the human battle to simply trash ejected from human warships. Even the human pirates protected the device, claiming that they'd never heard of such a thing. The High Council of the Morsians now was invested in the search and increased the funds for the operation, while simultaneously lifting some restrictions. But this... They finally got a result. Commander Quisp was about to go into deep space for a secret mission. Leading the way for the operation and using confiscated pirate ships was War Chief Macrum. Exactly when the human ship had to turn and get out of FTL speed, they attacked. The human had no chance. The ship was destroyed and the search started. There it was. It even was in the same as remembered. The device was carefully stored, and they disappeared before the humans came looking for the ship. After some study, they found that it didn't need a password, because the human was using it when he was attacked, and after some tinkering from the tech guys, it was now compatible with their charging devices. But now that it was there, they had a problem. It wasn't in galactic language, it was probably one of the many human languages as an extra security measure. What even was a Ahadrez, Creditos, Opsianes, Un Jugador, or Das Jugadore? After some tinkering with the device, they discovered that the AI only activated while using Un Jugador and Das Jugadore was for simulation against another user. War Chief Markram was the first to try it. The ships available were the same for the AI and himself. Surely, for some fairness in the simulation but the movements were limited. One of the ships could only move aligned with the grid, the other only diagonally with the grid. Another could do small FTL jumps represented as an L-shaped movement on the grid, but his favorite was the mothership that could move however it wanted. Sure, the catastrophic failure he faced against the AI was only because he didn't know that the entire simulation was about protecting the flagship, capable only of small one-grid movements similar to the mothership. It was more of a hindrance than an asset, but surely it had its tactical importance for the humans. After two cycles without sleeping and no victories, War Chief Markram was forced to recognize the AI as a great enemy. No wonder the humans were so proficient at war. He then decided that he needed help to beat the AI and asked the High Council to bring him some more war chiefs to test the AI's capabilities. The Council delivered and every veteran war chief was sent to help him. It took two cycles to explain the weird movements of the ship and battle conditions to the war chiefs. War Chief Markram felt weird and somehow proud of having to teach these war chiefs, some of them even regarded as heroes amongst their people. 42 cycles and three attempts of War Chief Mahar to destroy the device later, they had to admit that the AI was a formidable tactical genius, no less. But as usual, the High Council came to the rescue. Now, with important information. On a pirate prison, 
there was a human, an important human. Commander Quisp was alive and had survived the attack, but he was now a prisoner of the pirates that they had posed as during the attack. War Chief Markram got the approval of the High Council to use their own uniforms and colors to get there and retrieve Commander Quisp. The battle was short-lived in the maze-like hideout of pirates, only a few pirates to take down. But Commander Quisp was still trapped in his laser-proof, glass-like prison. He couldn't hear War Chief Markram when he told him that he was being taken prisoner again. He seemed rather happy at what to his eyes must have looked like a rescue mission. War Chief Markram then had a stroke of inspiration and gave Commander Quisp the device pointing at him and the device. He thought the message was clear. Show us how to use it. Commander Quisp looked confused. My grateful. Surely the loss of his device was severely punished by the humans, but he didn't get the message at all. It was then when adversity struck. The reinforcements of the pirates retaliated and the combat began, forcing them to retreat to the hallway next to his cell. War Chief Markram saw in amazement as Commander Quisp, looking quite disgruntled, sat down and started to use the device while their strife with the pirates raged on. He couldn't help but admire the dedication the human military had for their training. After a few moments of tense fray, the pirates were dead and War Chief Markram was finally free to claim his prize. Only to have misfortune punch him in the gut again. He could hear metallic doors being taken down along with explosions, a trademark of a human strike teams. It was all over. Were the humans to discover that they had their war simulating AI, it could lead to a full-out war over espionage. The strike team was here. They pointed their guns at them. War Chief Markram couldn't let his people die for his mistake. He ordered them to drop their weapons. The human strike team released Commander Quisp. What are you doing? They came to rescue me too. They, they fought the pirates. War Chief Markram couldn't believe his ears. Was the human so grateful about recovering his device that he was covering them? Maybe he hid his loss of his device. Sorry, sir. Just to be clear, they didn't harm you in any way. No, um, unless you count destroying my win rate in my chess game to an easy mode. War Chief Markram knew that he was supposed to feel relieved. But his head had only room for two questions. Game. Easy mode. End of story. Story number two. Child of Light. Written by Ozzy Endeavor. Humans. They are something. Or inspiring would probably be the best way to describe them. I've never actually been near one in person. Since the main way they interact with the world around them is, well, light. One of their main senses involves the ability to absorb electromagnetic radiation through a couple of organs and use it to observe the world. Plus, their skin is practically immune to the stuff. I don't know what kind of freak event drove life down such a different path than their home planet, but they evolved on the planet's surface. While the rest of us evolved in the deepest depths of the sea, or in the hollow caverns far away from the light. They walked in it. Their cities are exposed to the open atmosphere. Their tallest buildings are literally called skyscrapers, and they wake up each day while the sun shines down on them, even when the dark tries to give them refuge. They refuse to abandon the light. 
At night, their cities unleash their own flood of photons, so much so that they drown out even the stars above. We would perish if we went anywhere near a human settlement. We block out the light, but they welcome it, and when there isn't enough, they make more. Humans are absolutely terrifying, but also so incredible. My species never dared to try and reach our planet's surface. We are content with staying underground, for we know that there is nothing outside other than light and death. They are the opposite. They seek out the very thing that brings us decay. They were the first species we came into contact with, because they were the first to leave their home planet. They introduced us to many other species, all of which evolved in the nurturing dark. It's funny, isn't it? If it weren't for humanity, none of us would know of each other. We would all be stuck underground on planets spread far throughout the galaxy until the time came when the light finally consumed us. All the darkness that birthed us took us back. I don't really know what to make of them. Some see them as demons who have forsaken the darkness and are trying to erase it. Others see them as gods who have conquered death and are trying to show us the wonders of the universe. At least there is one thing that we can all agree on. Living things as we know them are the children of the dark. And yet, humanity is the only child of light. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1361. Flinch, written by Fisser 946. The Great War had been over and done with for a decade now, but Ulton still felt as though he was fighting it. They'd come over the endless sea in wooden ships with massive sails and laid claim to land that had belonged to the elves for a thousand generations. Still, they were weak and slow, and the first settlers were driven out to the mountains or back across the endless sea when faced with the strength and speed of the elves. Hulton slapped a few pieces of copper on the counter and started on another drink, the strong dwarfish ale tickling the back of his throat as he tried to forget the embarrassment of his people. The innkeeper took his old glass and wiped it down with an old cloth, her dwarfish fingers deftly polishing the glass before placing it back on display. A bearded dwarf and an orc in the far corner by the hearth argued in the orcish tongue as they gambled, dicing with the knuckle bones of some unlucky foe. Ulton had fought in the Great War. He had faced the enemy, and fighting them was like child's play. He wondered how they had lost to such a pathetic race. The steady sound of raindrops against the tiles on the roof were interrupted as the door slid open soundlessly on dwarf-made hinges and slammed into the wall. A dark figure stepped through the doorway, with a massive wolfhound following closely. The figure turned and shut the door as water dripped from his dark cloak to form a muddy puddle around his well-worn boots. 
a long sword hung at his left hip, and a dagger at the other, and a huge rucksack forced him to slouch. Ulton fingered the pommel of his own sword in its sheath. It was elvish steel, sung from the ironwood and powerful words of the old tongue, as light as a feather, sharper than sin, and far stronger than the black iron that the enemy used. Excuse me, sir, um, I heard there was a room here for a weary traveller. I got coin. The traveller walked towards the dwarf, procuring a coin purse from deep within the hidden pocket. The dwarf sneered. That's missed to ya, the irate dwarf practically growled as she tucked away the cloth into a strap of her brown apron. The newcomer stuttered and stammered an apology. His inability to properly address his potential hostess a clear sign that he was an outsider. Ulton felt disgust as he turned back to his cup. He paused for a moment before thinking better of it and left the cup to sit as he considered the traveller. I don't know what to say. I'm sorry, milady. It truly really must have been rain in my eyes or something. The newcomer counted his payment before adding an extra silver piece and pressing it into the dwarf's open hand. Got your yarmering, for God's sake. Your room's on the second floor, third one to the left, down the hall. Dog's gotta stay outside, though. You can tie the beastie up in the old barn. No horses in there, so it should be fine. The placated dwarf dismissed her guest as she happily pocketed the extra silver piece before putting the rest of the coins in a hidden compartment behind the counter. The traveller stammered out an apology, commenting on the beauty of his host, before backing out the door with his wolfhound. Ulton tossed back the drink before following. Outside the inn, the grey clouds continued to pour down a torrent of rain, and the muddy ground sucked at his elegant boots. Ulton felt a little dizzy from the drink, but he walked confidently towards the figure by the barn. On all sides, the dark pines threatened to close in. But Ulton took comfort in their presence. Like great sentinels, they were one of the few things that outlived elves, and they would bear witness to the justice he planned on dispensing. The traveller was struggling to tie his massive dog to a post, and as Ulton got closer, he could see that he was missing his forefinger from his right hand and was clumsily making due with those fingers that were left to him. Pale scars crisscrossed against his dark skin. The traveller had finally threaded the rope through the collar on his dog and tied a knot. He pulled once, then twice, to make sure that it was secure. Did you lose it in the war? Hulton asked casually. The traveller in black jumped and fell in surprise at the sound of his voice turning around onto his back and panting as he clutched at his chest. Up close, he looked much older than Ulton had realized. His coarse beard was still dark brown, but threads of silver had begun lacing their way into the dark locks underneath his rain-soaked hood. A pale thin line was traced along his cheek where the point of a sword had narrowly missed blinding him. Ulton hadn't aged at all since the Great War but it looked as though the traveller in front of him had felt the ravages of time more acutely. In the back of his mind, Alton remembered that his foe was short-lived and aged very rapidly in comparison to his own people. You shouldn't sneak up on someone like that, said the traveller, struggling to stand. He reached out a hand for assistance, but Alton denied him. The man finally groaned as he pushed himself onto his own two feet. The name's Eric just... Just Eric, it's nice to meet you. The man extended a hand in a peculiar gesture, 
waiting for Alton to take it and shake it. Alton simply stared at the man until he lowered his hand. Well, um, it's nice chatting with you, mister, but I am, uh, I'm heading inside now. Um, it's awful cold and wet out here. Uh, you should come inside. Alton cut him off for the fist, striking the old traveller in the stomach and sending him to his knees. Draw your sod, he commanded as his foe gasped for breath. He couldn't let bygones be bygones, huh? It's been ten years, the man shouted from his place in the mud, but he stood anyways. He slid his blade from his sheath, the old iron sword glistening from the rain. Hulton could see the telltale sign of an iron sword that had tasted elvish steel. A dozen witches had been cut into the edge where it had met with a song-forged elvish sword. Ten years is nothing, Ulton declared solemnly as he drew his own sword. Three feet of golden green steel sung as it slid freely from its sheath. The enemy shouted before rushing forwards, swinging his own sword in a powerful two-handed arc down at Alton's head. Alton knocked it aside with ease. The wolfhound shook the entire barn as it tore free to aid its master, but a word of the old tongue from Alton sent the dog whimpering with its tail between its legs. It was good to see that even foreign beasts were subject to the powers of the old tongue. The traveler roared again, sending a flurry of sword strikes towards Alton. He checked each one, almost lazily. His own sword sung each time it struck the hard iron sword, and his foe grunted each time a stroke was suddenly stopped. Alton was almost bored before he slid close and disarmed his opponent, as he had done thousands of times before. It was pathetic, really. The traveler glared at him from beneath his dark hood as his sword went flying into the dark woods. Alton raised his sword and pointed it at his chest. He glowered at the traveler with a look of contempt. Hey, what do you think you're two doing? The innkeeper hollered from the porch, waving her stunted arms wildly over her head. Behind her, the orc and the bearded dwarf had given up their warm seats by the hearth to watch the fight through the window, no doubt placing bets. The dwarf looked very pleased with himself, having put his money on Ulton. Only an orc would be dumb enough to wager against that. I'm showing this one his place. Ulton didn't even turn to look at her as he drove the point of his sword against the chest of his enemy. You know, he said, addressing the foe in front of him, I'll never understand how your kind won the war. You're slow and weak and... Ulton's words were cut short as the defeated foe lurched forward, pushing the sword aside with the flat of the four-fingered hand and burying his dagger into Ulton's neck. Ulton dropped the blade in the mud as he struggled to pull the rough iron knife from his throat. He tried to mutter a few words in the old tongue, something to mend his mortal wound, but the only sound he could make was a gurgle. At this point, his bow was holding him up, and the dwarf had ceased her protests. And we don't flinch when it comes to killing. The old human whispered in his ear as his lifeblood ebbed through the hole in his neck, and the rain washed his pains away. Inside the inn, the orc was whooping and hollering with laughter as his companion stared on in shock. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1362 Story number one. We are immortal. Written by hmm. 
The whole galaxy has known about quantum mechanics for longer than most species have existed. It was the fundamentals for computing far and wide, after all. No one questioned anything about it. Why would they? It was science, and a very set-in-stone one at that. There seemingly wasn't any room for philosophy. Then we met some goddamn maniacal monkeys who were going through an existential crisis from the moment they could properly think till death. The human, short, strong, friendly, blah, blah, blah. You've heard it a million times. Now, as most know, the humans are very good at things that the mind can grasp, after now performing their peers marginally. On the contrary, things that they suck at, they really suck at. And you guessed it, quantum mechanics is one of those things. Don't get me wrong, they try their absolute best to understand it, and they can memorize how things work. But understanding a subject and grasping it are two different things. As such, when we found them all those moons ago, we were the ones who helped them in that field. At the time... It was all pretty formal. It was as much information sharing as diplomatic meetings. But as both parties settled into their status quo, many, myself included, started making lifelong friends with our new colleagues. I was well acquainted with a man called Jean-Pierre, and would spend many nights having drinks in his office after hours. It was on one of those nights that this conversation happened. A conversation... That would forever change me. I don't recall what I said, but I said that he would die from something that he claimed he did. Back before we learned to not question them too much. He was quite red at this point and laughed saying, Oh ma, don't worry, we're all immortal anyway. He was quite drunk, so I thought he was making things up. But I was drunk too, so I called his bluff. I thought he was referring to his biology till he clarified and said that he was referring to quantum immortality. I asked him what he meant. I am quite a well-read researcher, but have never come across such a theory. He looked at me puzzled, and then realized, Oh, uh, don't worry, it's pretty controversial theory, uh, so my guess is that we're just wrong. <laughs> uh, that must have explained it. But curious anyway, I asked him to elaborate for shits and giggles, and he obliged. What he proceeded to explain to me has haunted me for the rest of my life. The theory itself is quite simple and follows two principles that are accepted. First, all information on a quantum scale cannot be destroyed, with exceptions to black holes. Second, the superposition of particles means that every time that they are observed, time splits in two. One where each state is observed Simple enough, so far. Building on these principles, we must assume that consciousness is a thing in the universe, as we still do not exactly know what consciousness is to this day. We can only assume it is. That last statement is also where this controversy lies, as if it does not prove to be a quantifiable thing. For the lack of a better term, then the theory falls apart. But I assume most people can agree sentience should be quantifiable in some way. However, for any individual, only their own sentience can be agreed to exist, as there is no way of confirming the consciousness 
of another. So, if the information of the conscious mind exists, then it cannot cease to exist. But people die, I hear you ask, and I hear myself ask in the past. But from your perspective, only you are conscious. So the theory postulates that from your point of view, as a sentient entity, you will never die. Or at least, your consciousness will never cease to exist for you. Because the moment you die, superposition tells us that there will be a split, one where you are dead and one where you are not. Then, as you cannot not exist from your point of view, you go on living forever. In other people's point of view, you might have died, but not yours. Awesome, right? Immortality for all of us. Except it isn't. For the humans, as I said, live in constant existential dread. And so, I was told the true horror of the theory. A theory that is just as likely as any other that is untestable. He looked at me with a heavy look and asked me a rhetorical question. So, what happens when you die? I knew what he meant. Not getting killed, but dying of old age. I've come up with two answers so far. Firstly, that your universe simply ceases to exist. Every other might still exist, but the one you experienced, worked so hard on, will vanish. Very sad to think about, and Pierre agreed. However, even more scary for this human, it seemed, was the alternative. Infinite life. Once your body rots away, your conscious gets swallowed up into the universe, where you drift between the stars. To me, it sounded nice and peaceful. I did not understand why he didn't prefer this option in his hypothetical. The idea that we cannot die, that we are doomed to be bound to this plane for all eternity till the eventual heat death of the universe, that is a concept worse than hell to me, an infinite limbo of stagnation well awake. He looked out of the window overlooking Earth's moon. I love existing. However, if there is no end, then what's the point? Might as well just be a rock. You would end up the same. I didn't know how to retort, because that was true. We are not simply specks of dust in a universe, because we lived and died, not simply existed. And then I realized something very important. You might be wondering why you are still reading this future ambassador. Well, it's simple. Here on my deathbed, after being an ambassador to Earth for the better part of a century, I am afraid. I am afraid of what is to come. For the humans have rubbed off on me, and they will rub off on you. And maybe, one day in the future, you too will truly be afraid of what is to come. But like me, you'll be more afraid of something else. I am more afraid of losing the humans. For whatever I might feel now, I know humanity had to deal with this alone for so long now. We are an old race. We know how to heal ourselves very well. But the human mind seems hardwired to fail. I'm writing this as a plea, a plea to help them, to tear their gaze away from the void, to show them the wonders of the universe, to be a friend, and as a friend of theirs, I can only ask you one thing, 
Please give them a hug. Space is very cold. And they have been alone for a long, long time. End of story. Story number two. What they brought with them. Written by Brentha. To the honored members of the Trade Council, every species has something that sets them apart. The Kantari came with minds like organic calculators, able to process massive quantities of data in short order. This also made them the galaxy's go-to accountants, banks and firms springing up and resulting in a founding of the centralized galactic currency. Even in modern times, only a supercomputer can match an individual Kantari accountant. The Malar, our master craftsman, their limbs capable of unparalleled precision in the construction of void ships and industrial equipment. The galaxy is a widespread on so many worlds thanks to the expansion afforded by them. I could go on about the many other races, but that is not why I have chosen to appear before the Commission. These two examples provide pretext for the reason for being here. That is, the human menace. Humanity became a part of the galactic community in a gentle and simple manner. Following a brief quarantine period, their people were permitted to travel to new worlds. Humanity's unusual adaptability was the first trait researchers discussed as their unique contribution to civilized society. A race that could colonize and industrialize otherwise undesirable worlds could go far. Oh, how they were wrong. Humanity was not just adaptive, they were creative in every aspect of living. Commodities and useless goods they referred to as uh, <laughs> entertainment flooded the galactic market. The overuse of even their virtual entertainment devices is considered a clinical mental health issue. When humanity ascended, they brought their best and brightest. It's just that they also brought their worst habits to the galactic community. Recreational use of medical drugs, virtual environments designed to escape reality, dooming an individual to never desire to return to a productive citizen. And the worst of it all, bars. Establishments specifically designed to deliver poisons to those who wish to partake. Species of all kinds come to these places, flock to them on every colonized world, and even most stations to socialize and drink unfettered. They come to ruin their lives by drinking copious amounts of poison and completely disrupt the productivity of a people. Even humanity has a term for regulars that frequent this place. Alcoholics. This cannot be allowed. It is thus I propose the closure and legalization of all human manufactured intoxicants and these <laughs> toys before our economy crumbles under the weight of their toxic and addictive influence and drain on our economic growth. Thank you for your time. Lix Maribar, Senior Commission Board Member, former. End of story. I just want to quickly thank the T5 channel members and patrons. Alithia, Barky, Trigan95, Beautycure, Meridian117, Cam Maxwell, Casper Arnholt, Jordan Buxborn, Angry Marine, Albard and Gusta, Savage Patch Papa, and Arcadian. And that, my friends, is the end of this podcast version of Tales from Outer Space. I hope that you enjoyed. 
Please check the links down below if you wish to support any of the authors that wrote any of the stories in this episode. There are also links if you wish to support this channel. And I'll see you all in the next episode. And until then, I hope that you have a fantastic one. Cheers.